And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for, the purpose, for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pedadiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanana, that was a tough one, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Yaman, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masai, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing, nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the father's house of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make the booths as it was written. So the people went out and brought with them and so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in their courts in the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, that day, to that day the people in Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. Uh, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Let me pray one more time real quick. I'm not feeling real good this morning, and uh, just kind of been sick, and um, I just need to, to pray to God just to basically provide the word this morning for us. Father God, I just pray that you would um, be strong in my weakness this morning, Father. I'm just not feeling very well. And I just want to be open and honest before you, Father, that it just it's hard being up here this morning. And, um, you know, knowing my family's at home not feeling well as well, Father. And I just pray 
Father, I do this because I love to see your word lifted up high. I love to see Jesus lifted up high, Father. And I pray, I pray that that would be the case this morning, Lord. I pray, Father, that this would be nourishment for your people. I pray, Father, that this would just cause us to um, to love and to adore Jesus this morning. And I pray that you would just um, speak through me. I'm just a just a vessel of clay, Father. And I just pray that you would um, just be clear, Father, on exactly what you want us to do and take away this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Nehemiah is a pretty interesting book. You know, Nehemiah talks a lot about um, building. You know, Nehemiah 1 through 6... The people are building the city. You've got the building of the wall. We went through, you know, Kevin preached on chapter 7 last week. Chapter 7 is kind of where Nehemiah starts changing. It's where you go from, you know, chapters 1 through 6, you've got Nehemiah. They've got a, uh, they've got a sword in one hand and they've got a shovel in the other. And they're literally, they're literally about to die, they think, to build this wall. God, essentially, what he's doing at the end of the Old Testament is he's trying to build a people up. And he's building them up physically, and he did that in the first six, seven chapters with Nehemiah. And he's going to start doing that soon here with Ezra in chapter 8. And if you guys have ever heard of, um, you know, when I started talking about building, and I started seeing, um, I started thinking of, like, what, what, what happens when you build things? And, you know, I thought of, um, you guys ever heard of World Changers? I used to do a World Changer. I used to go on these trips called, uh, it was with the Southern Baptist Convention. It's called World Changers. Basically, how it works is you go into areas where people can't afford to fix their houses. And, um, you know, we put siding up. We put, um, we took the roofs off and we would redo the roofs, you know, things like that. And because I'm the big guy, I ended up, you know, hauling the shingles up and down. They're like, hey, you're, you know, huge. Why don't you take the shingles and, you know. Take them up and down the uh, take them up and down the the uh, ladder, and I'm like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> What's interesting is every year, you know, we went in. I did one in Wyoming, I did one in Georgia, in Savannah, Georgia, the hottest place on the planet, and I did one in um, where was the other place I did one? Anyway, every time they're like, hey, Jeremy, can you can you know load the shingles on the roof? You know, these shingles weigh you know what are they, 60, 70 pounds? And you know, I've got one on my shoulder, and I'm climbing up the ladder, pouring sweat. And I'm just about to die. And what's interesting is all the leaders of these groups always ask me to do that for some reason. They always assume that I could do that. I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that I'm large and I can carry big things. And I have no ability with a hammer. Like when I hammer things, it's like, like right there in the finger every time. Because I didn't learn to do that growing up. I've got a certain tool set that other people don't have. You have a certain tool set that other people don't have. Nehemiah had a tool set to where he was he was kind of like the governor. Nehemiah could do all the administrative stuff, but Ezra was the priest. And we're going to start see, we're going to see here in chapter 8, Ezra starts building the people spiritually where Nehemiah was building them physically. And what's interesting, and the one thing I want to get across this morning is God builds. God builds every day. He builds people by His Word. That's the overarching story of this section in chapter 8, is God is building His people back by His Word. So you need tools to build, and God's tool is His Word, and His Word ultimately points us towards Jesus. Um, there's a poet you may have heard of. Her name's Maya Angelou. I reference her because I liked her quote. She said, living a life is like constructing a building. If you start wrong, you'll end wrong. I completely agree with her. She may not have meant what the way she may not have meant it the way I want to use it this morning, but living a life is like constructing a building. If you start wrong, you end wrong. If 
the foundation is bad, the whole house is bad. It doesn't matter how nice your house looks on the outside, if the foundation's bad, it's going to crumble. If the foundation has mold in it, it doesn't matter if the house is nice, it's going to be condemned because it's got mold in it. So I want us to see two things from the text this morning. I want to see, number one, that God's Word is central to His people. God always has built by His Word. It's not God did not build by the law in the Old Testament. He built by His Word. And we're going to see in verse, uh, we're going to see uh, later too, God's Word requires a response from His people. You know, in light of this, it's like, okay, God builds by His Word, so what? And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about how we as His people take a look at that. Look with me in verse 1. Could you pull that up, Matt? And the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. What's interesting is this was not initiated by Ezra. Now it was planned out because we see later that there was a wooden platform that had been built for it. The people initiated this. That's what I find so interesting about this. It says, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And it says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And he ends up reading the law. And you've got to think, this is the first time that this nation has read the law out loud after the walls have been built that we know of. What's interesting about this is, like I said in the first seven chapters, is Nehemiah is building them spiritually. They're starting with God's word as their foundation for their nation in this chapter. What I find interesting too is no matter how different these people were. If these people are anything like us, they are totally different. I have a friend in Kentucky and I joke with them that we would not be friends if it wasn't for us both being Christians. We have nothing in common, but we love each other to death. Like I call the guy up, we talk, we have one of those conversations, like we, you ever have that friendship where like you can talk with some people for an hour on the phone and you have some people like five or ten minutes? Me and Matt are kind of like that. We've got the five to ten minute thing down. But like, he, he's like, I can talk to him for like ten minutes, hear about him, talk with him. We have nothing and me and this guy have nothing in common except Christ. What's interesting about this is no matter how diverse all their likes and dislikes, their common desire was to listen to Scripture and it took precedence over everything else for them. It's the same with our community groups. Uh, the interest, I remember the, the first time we met as a community group, my, my first thought was, these people are invading my living room. Like, what are these people doing? It's like, I remember, uh, I didn't realize how tough it was on Luke and Paula when they had, the, they had our church at their house for the first little bit. I and mean, after like the first month of community groups, you're like, wow, this is, I love it, but it's crazy. And um, it's a lot like that. See, God puts us with people who are not like us to sharpen us. If you're always around someone that's just like you, I'll give you an example of this. I always reference me and Lindsay with this because me and Lindsay are like, she's somewhere over here and I'm like somewhere outside of the gym somewhere. We're, me and Lindsay are very little alike. And our, you know, it took us a long time to get used to each other, but because we were so different, we ended up sharpening the rough edges of off, off of each other. Um, there's, there's one verse, I say this verse like almost weekly. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You start seeing rough edges of yourself come off with people that are a little bit different than you because they sin in different ways from you. They, um, they may respond to things in different ways. And so it's really interesting that all these people, despite all their differences, they came together to worship. They came together to hear the word. The word points us to God. If you look with me in verse 6, 
Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a, um, there's a teacher at a school in Florida, John Frame. He said, I thought he was so dead on. He said, so the word of God, when we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. When we encounter God, we encounter his word. We cannot encounter God without his word or the word without God. God's word and his personal presence are inseparable. Whenever God's word is spoken, read, or heard, God himself is there. It's very interesting that they started reading the word. You see in chapter 6, and it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their hands and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The word brought them to God. We're going to see as we get a little bit further into this in a minute that essentially in the New Testament, Jesus is the Word. The Word always points us to God. We should ascribe as much... We should ascribe as much glory to the Word as we do God because it points us to God. God tells us to do so. The Word is, is Jesus. And we're going to see this as we get to that a little bit in the New Testament. Verse 6 as well, it leads us to worship. It leads us to... It leads us to... It leads us... It points us to God and it leads us to worship God. We see ourselves in light of the Word. When the Word... I don't know if you've ever read your Bibles um, and you come to a section that you've been over a hundred times and the hundred and first time God speaks to you through it. It's like that hundred and first time... It's like there's something in your life that God is not pleased with, and he starts working on it with you. And I always find it very interesting that, you know, often that leads to worship because it leads... Worship is essentially, essentially acknowledging that we cannot be our own saviors. That we have to worship someone who is so holy, so glorious, that the Word a lot of times will show us our sin and it leads us to worship. Look at me in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave their sense so that the people understood the reading. God's people understanding His Word is the key to building His people. God wanted them to know His Word. He had people set up. He had Levites. He had teachers set up. So that these people, the, the common people, could understand His Word. If you're going to see change in your life as a Christian, you have to understand God's Word. There's a um, there's a, a pastor uh, by the name of John Piper, and he said one thing that's always stuck with me. He said, you can rake, but all you're going to get is leaves. But if you dig, you might get diamonds. The Bible's the same way. You know, if you if you are going to just sit down and read a chapter of the Bible at a time, and you know, just read maybe one chapter. God God may speak to you through it. But what if you sat down and you actually studied that chapter? You know, we. Um, Biblical illiteracy within the church today is really high because we find every reason not to understand God's Word. We have all the tools there, more than any nation in the world. We have all the tools there to understand God's Word. If you want to see change in your life, if you want to know God, you have to, you have to learn to study the Word. God built Israel through that. That's what God's doing right now. He's building Israel through the study of His Word. So it says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. Who gave the sense? These people before that were listed. They were, they were telling them what the word meant so they could go home and apply it. There's a verse in Hebrews I love. It says, encourage one another today as long as it's called today. Christianity is, is about a community of believers worshiping and praising God. 
Um, it's not a social club, you know. Christ said, or Paul said, if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are most all men to be pitied. The church makes no sense if it's just a social club, or if it's something you do just to get worth out of it. This is, this is where we come and we spread during the week in our mission groups. That's where we come to worship God, to know Him more fully. And how do we do that? We do that through His Word. That's why we center everything we do on the Word. That's why preaching, when you come to church, preaching takes the central part of the service because the Word is that important. We live in a culture where the Word is undermined. You know, you've got, you've got television, which is going to give us fragments of things here and there. You've got all these different things that's vying for our attention. At the end of the day, the only thing that's important is the Word and knowing God. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart for God. I want to focus on that section that says teaching and admonishing. Christianity, you know, at the same time, it's not just a social club. It's not a social club. On the other hand, it's not something meant to be lived individually as well. I remember I was... Um, I was working at this church about six or seven years ago as, an, as a youth ministry intern, and um, the youth pastor there was one of my friends, and he was talking to me about this this girl that you know he was really trying to push on to get more involved because he saw a lot of potential in her, but she just she just always shrugged off when a commitment came. And I remember we were at her car one night after church, and uh, he's talking with her about you know what what membership means within within the church, and. Um, I'll never forget what she said because it's kind of fu- it's it's funny and interesting at the same time. She said, "I can worship God while I'm in my backyard watching my chickens." Now you're only going to hear that in the South. You're not going to hear that. You know, Mike's not going to hear that in California. You know, you're not going to hear I can worship God while I'm tending to my chickens. But you will hear a lot of people, and this is what you're going to hear. I'm serious. You're going to hear people say, "Well, I watch I watch um, I watch so and so on Sunday mornings at ten o'clock. I watch this person at eleven o'clock. You know, I I I go to church occasionally. I do this occasionally." What's interesting about the Bible is the Bible, especially the New Testament, it just assumes that we are in fellowship and community with one another. The whole New Testament, you can basically, it presupposes that we're doing this from Acts on. It's very interesting. Just like the author of Hebrews says, encourage one another today as long as it's called today, you can't encourage someone today if you're not in their lives. The Christian life can't be lived alone. It's impossible. I've tried. It's impossible. I've been a Christian about 10 years, and there has been points in my life where you try to live the Christian life alone, and what ends up happening is your heart gets hardened, and you essentially... You become numb to the word, you become numb to life, and then you just give up everything. And really, you're not living any differently than anyone else. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing when you see Christians come together wanting to sharpen one another and wanting to see the word change each other's lives. Because the word does have a power. This is, this is not just a book. I stake my life on the fact that this is the Word of God. If this is not the Word of God, I want to go home because I'm wasting my time. I stake my entire life on the fact that that's the Word of God. And I want to see us as a church, I want to see us grow in that, and I want to see us share that with people in Knoxville that are around us. So many people in Knoxville just think of church as somewhere to go to, to look good for everybody else. That's not the point. The point of church is that we come together to worship and glorify God who takes, he, He's over every atom in the universe. There's not a solar flare on the sun that does not move without God saying, I want that to move. 
our lives are staked on this. This is not something that is just... This is not something that's, that's just a, a fun and games. I mean, I, I, I love to see people grow in Christ. It's, it's a miracle to see your life, if you're a Christian, from the time you see your attitudes and desires change from the time that you were saved, from the time that God saved you. You see those change and you see wanting to be like God. It's so counter-revolutionary in this culture to want to be something that's impossible. The Christian life is impossible, yet God calls us to do it and He calls us to do it together. There's a um, there's a guy by the name of George Mueller. If you've ever heard of George Mueller, if you've never heard of him, he was a um, George Mueller owned uh, or George Mueller was over a ministry in London. He was a contemporary of Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. I'm not quoting Spurgeon this morning. This is my first time in like three sermons. I haven't quoted Charles Spurgeon. I will quote Lord of the Rings later, however. George Mueller basically uh, he was uh, over a ministry where they um, where they uh, I'm trying to think of the way, way I want to put. He, he, he multiplied um, orphanages basically in London in the 1800s there were a lot of orphanages or I'm sorry a lot of orphans and so George Mueller had this ministry where he was always building orphanages for people and what was interesting about George Mueller is you know he, he could talk all day about the work he was doing for God but ultimately what he desired at the end of the day was God's word he said he said, in what way shall we attain to the setting of happiness of our soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How shall we obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in Him as shall enable us to let go of the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison? This happiness is to be obtained through the study of Scripture. God has revealed Himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like, just like in verse 8, these people were... That these people were set aside to understand the word. God was building this nation on the fact that they would understand his word and they would apply it. God today builds his church through the fact that we would understand the word and that we would apply it. Your, your spiritual growth is tied to the Bible. The second part I want us to see in, in verse 9 is our response to his word. It's, it's really interesting Nehemiah is a really interesting book because it kind of takes a break. I, I said earlier, it kind of takes a break in like chapter 6 and then it starts, after the wall's built, you start seeing God build the nation. And what's interesting is it starts revealing, it starts revealing their hearts. Look with me in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They wept because previous to this, they were in, they were uh, basically cast out uh, in generations before this from the promised land, from Israel. And they had spent all this time in seclusion, and basically they're weeping over their sins. God's word reveals our hearts to us. Um, they realized that they had neglected the law and they wept and exposed their sin. Like I said earlier, it's like you, it's like you, will, you will read the Bible and it causes such a great grief over you because you see how short you actually are. You see how short of the mark with God that you are. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Words on a page are not living. 
for God to say that His Word is living, and we'll see later in John 1, 1 that Jesus is the Word, words on the page are not living unless God wants them to be, because ultimately the Word is Jesus. The reason why the Word the word convicts us. The reason why the word is booming in China and Africa right now is because God wants it to. God is using that word to build his church. Just like he's using this word to build Israel. It says it's, uh, author of Hebrews says it's living and active. It's active. It's, it's not passive. It's doing things in your life. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow. Essentially, it gets deep down into crevices of your heart that you may not even know existed. I was talking with a guy at work this week, uh, two weeks ago, uh, a really good friend of mine at work I've made in the last few months. And, you know, I said to him, I, I just told we were talking about, um, you know, we were just talking about emotions and stuff. And I said, you know, I feel like I don't even know my heart sometimes. He goes, yeah, I know what you mean. And, you know, really deep down we're all that way. I don't think we understand the the, the problem of our heart. Our heart is uh, an idol factory. Our heart wants things that are contrary to God our entire lives. And the Christian life is fighting against that and giving God the glory that he deserves. Sin is not an action, it's from our hearts. Sin is a condition. Sin is not an action that you do at minimum. Sin, sin is also, it is an action, but sin underneath it is, is a heart problem. It was, um, you know, the, um, the shooting that happened this week, I've been listening to a lot of commentaries on it and a lot of uh, newspapers on it. And what they end up going back to is they always end up going back, uh, the guy that, that killed the people in Aurora, Colorado, what they always end up going back to is they're like, this guy was troubled, this guy had this problem, he must have had this wrong with him, he might have had this wrong with him. As Christians, we know deep down the guy had a heart issue. You know, we can, we can sit here and we can talk about, you know, what, was it this that led to him doing it? Was it this that led him to him doing it? It was essentially letting sin devour his life. It was essentially letting himself give himself over to his sin. And it's very interesting as I've listened to commentaries on it this week. No one talks about the heart. No one talks about the real matter of importance in the situation. It's his heart. Your and my hearts are the same. Your and my hearts are idol factories that want to, that just naturally cling towards not wanting God and not knowing God. And that's the struggle that we have to fight, just like Israel had to fight. Verse 10. God builds his people, and their response is he gives them joy in him. He gives them, he gives them a joy that transcends their, this joy transcends their circumstances. You know, can you, can you have joy in suffering? Paul did. How did Paul have joy in suffering? Because God was enough. God was everything he needed. Whether he was, whether he was in a prison, whether he was being whipped or beaten or killed, 11 of the 12 apostles were killed or martyred. John was the only one that lived to see the end of his life. What's interesting about that is they, they did it with joy. They were, they were honored to die for Christ's name. We talk about, you know, joy, joy and death is one thing. You know, our, our joy, it seems so much more insignificant with that because our, our troubles are a lot less than death, but they're still there. Can you find joy in God in your circumstances? To do that, you have to know the Word. You have to memorize the Word. You have to, you have to see God's face on each page of the Word because God is speaking through His Word every day to people. What's interesting in verse 10, it says, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. 
as it portions anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The word strength means protection. God, and basically it means protection from God's wrath. You know, earlier we, we see um, that their hearts were revealed, that they see that they're, they, they, they weeped. They're weeping because they've got a problem, because they've not obeyed God's word. And yet in verse 10, God says that he's going to be their protection. In spite of in spite of their life not not owning up to what they want it to be, not owning up to what where God wants it to be, God's protecting them. This is what I really want to focus on. Look at me with uh, look at me uh, look at the verse with me in verse fourteen. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. What does that mean? They're living in booths. They're on top of their houses in these booths. What in the world does that mean? There was a, um, they had a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And essentially what it was is, if you've ever heard the story in Exodus of God saving the people out of, uh, God saving the people out of Egypt, is that's what they're remembering. Basically, they're going back to God's work in the past, and they're remembering what God had done for his people after they had came out of Egypt. So they're setting up these booths in order to do that, in order to kind of commemorate and remember God's work with the people in the past. What's interesting about this is as you read on, they, they, get, they go out and they get these, they get these uh, branches. It says they get, they get olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths. So, so they're building these booths. That's got to look kind of weird going to a city. You walk into a city and there's booths just sitting up all around. What, what would your first reaction be? Why do you have booths in your city? And then they can tell you why they have booths in their city. But that's going to be kind of a strange thing to see these booths in the city that they've set up. What's interesting, and what I want to look at here, is they, had, they did it with joy. They did their obedience with joy. One thing that the church in America needs to learn, that we all need to learn, I need to learn this in my life. I, we all want to be a Pharisee deep down. We all want to justify ourselves deep down. What's interesting about this is the people, obedience was something they wanted to do as opposed to something they had to do. In the Christian life, when you're just doing obedience just to make God happy, you're glorifying yourself. If you come to, if, if salvation is of you and your good works, then eventually you're going to say to God, you owe me something. Look at what I do for you. I do this. It's, it's, the, it's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee comes and he says, I've tied deal cumin. I've tied, I did all this for you, God. Look what I do for you, God. I do this and I do this. Be happy with me. Look, look with honor upon me. Look how good I am. The tax collector beats his chest and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the text says, who do you think came away justified? It was the tax collector. Tax collector was humble before God. He realized that salvation, that the working out of everything in his life was God's doing, not his. To live, to live the Christian life and to be built like God is trying to be, build the, the Jews in this, in this verse, to do that, we have to understand that obedience is something we get to do. It's a joy that we get to do. We get to understand the Word. People who do not know Christ, it says, are spiritually blinded. They're spiritually discerned. They can't even do the Word. It's a privilege for us to, to know the Word. And, and the reason why we do this joyfully is because Christ, when, when God looks at us, He sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see ours. If I had to stand before God on my own righteousness, I would be consumed in flames. 
I couldn't stand. I would last about 0.2 minutes. You can ask anyone that knows me. I can't stand. I have to have the righteousness of another who came and died in my place so that I can stand before God. And once you realize that in the Christian life, it changes everything. You're not obeying God just to make God happy with you. You're obeying God out of a sense of of joy for what He has done for you. And that's something I, I harp on this so much with, with our small group and with people in my life because this was what turned my, my life around. Once I realized that works come from the fact that God's already saved me, justified me, brought me to Him, then everything else falls in line. I don't have, like, if I, if I screw up, I'm still righteous before God because of Christ and I move on. I keep persevering. I keep going. When you realize that, your Christian life will change. One, that, that, that's a, a key essential to living the Christian life. Something else that, that um, something else that's interesting about this joy is that this joy overflows into telling others of what God um, has done for them. When you look in verse fifteen, I'm sorry, verse sixteen. So the people went out. And brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God. Earlier in verse ten, it says, "It says that." Um, let me get that here. In verse ten, it says, "Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine." Let's see. There we go. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. They go and they're they're telling other people about what God has done for them. Once you realize that sharing your faith is not a drudgery, it's not something to be, it's not something to be uh, looked down on or scared of. It's a joy that you have. It's a privilege that you have. If 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 you're saved all of grace with no works of your own, no works of your, you're saved entirely by by the grace of Jesus Christ and God. Then. Telling other people about it is a privilege. It would be unloving for us to sit on what we have. It's like taking a treasure and burying it and sitting on it. It would be unloving to do that. What's interesting about verse 16, two I want to point out, is it says they made booths for themselves on their roofs. So they got, they got, these, they got these leafy booths on a roof. And their courts... And in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gates of Ephraim. What's interesting about this is the roof is where family life happens. This is in their home. So this is, you know, they're, they're essentially obeying God in their home. And it says in their courtyards where they welcomed guests. That's their social life. So they were obeying God. They were, the joy was coming over into their social life. In the courts of the house of God, this was coming over to their religious life. This was coming over when they meet together with other believers. The joy that they had was coming out. And what's interesting, too, is the water gate. That's where they did business. The water gate is where all the business took place. They're doing this family life, social, religious business life. God's Word speaks to every area of our lives. What's interesting about God's Word is no matter what culture, no matter what context you're in, God's Word speaks to it. That's the interesting thing about God's Word. A lot of, a lot of other religions are um, kind of based around a certain people group. Christianity, in the end, in Revelation, what's very interesting is it says there will be peoples of all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages. Christianity transcends culture. Like I said, the, the, the gospel is growing like weeds in China right now. It's growing like crazy in Africa. It's kind of tailing off in America. 
we think we have everything. We think that we don't need it. We don't need God. We, we, we're past God. We have this now. It's, it's very funny in Western cultures it's dying off and God's raising up people in other cultures. It, it transcends culture. You know, this Jesus was a Jewish peasant in a Roman Empire and now 2,000 years later we're sitting in a really, really hot gymnasium worshiping God. Think about that for a minute. Think of the amazingness of that. I mean, if, if you're here this morning, God brought you here for some reason. There, there's some reason why you're here. Even if you're not a believer, you're, you're interested. There's some reason you're here. 2,000 years later, God's still speaking through his word, just like he spoke through the Israelites 2,500 years ago. And it incorporates all of our lives. It transcends culture. That's why, that's why missionaries can go overseas and, and see people. You can see Indians in India. You can see Chinese people. Christianity transcends all of that. God's word is so powerful, it transcends all these little walls and barriers that we put up with one another. So that's what the text is about. This text is essentially about... God building his people by his word and and our response to it. What is our response to it? So the question is, where's Jesus in the text? You know, we talk a lot here about um, where Jesus is in the Old Testament, where he is in the New Testament. Jesus is in every verse. Sometimes he's hard to find. And then that uh, that, uh, quote I told you earlier about raking versus digging for diamonds. If you dig, you find him. If you rake, you're not going to find him. Where's Jesus in all this? What's interesting about everything I just told you is that you're going to fail at it. Everything I just told you, you're going to fail at. There's going to be some time, probably today, probably tomorrow, if not, it'll be sometime this week, where you're going to, you're going to let God down. You're, you're not going to live up to your end of the bargain. The great thing about Christianity is that God is a complete God of second chances. God, like I said earlier, is giving you His righteousness. A lot of people don't understand the gospel today. They think it's morals. They think it's being a good person. The gospel is the gospel is Jesus coming, fulfilling the law for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. When you stand before God in the day of judgment, and when I stand before God in the day of judgment, what am I going to say? What are you going to say? The first thing I'm going to say is, is there's Jesus. Look at him. I, I, Jesus. I mean, that's all you can say. All I can say is Jesus. If God, if I stand before God with my own works, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to be like wood. Uh, uh, one of the gospels says wood, hay, and stubble. I'm going to, I'm going to be consumed by fire. I have to build on things like gold and silver, which is Jesus. So we're at the end of the Old Testament. Nehemiah has built new walls for the people. Israel's, uh, Ezra is leading them to recommit their lives to God. So Nehemiah leaves. Nehemiah goes away for 12 years. We're going to see that later in chapter 13. So Nehemiah goes away. He goes back to uh, King Artaxerxes. Hey, I got it right. He goes back to King Artaxerxes. And the people intermarry again. You remember uh, in chapter 7, the people intermarried. If you remember back with Solomon, the reason why God didn't want people to intermarry is because those people were of different faiths and they were influencing, they were influencing the nation of Israel. And if you remember back uh, what Kevin was talking about, it is these people were not allowed to be into these people were not allowed into the city because they didn't have a pure bloodline. They weren't part of the people of God, basically. So the people have forgotten these people have forgotten all the joy they had previously, and that's how the New Testament ends. The New Testament, chapter thirteen, ends with them essentially disobeying everything that they told God that they were going to do in chapter eight. 
Uh, I mentioned this week in, in our small group, Judges, the whole book of Judges, it says, is the people doing what was right in their own eyes. So the, the old, this, is the, this is one of the last books chronologically in the Old Testament, and it ends with the people disobeying God. And there's silence for 400 years. For 400 years, God doesn't have a prophet. God doesn't speak. And the New Testament starts with a baby being born in a manger. God sent his son into human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that we do not have to live because he lived it. We get the opportunity to live it. We get the, we get the joy of living, trying to live that out. He took the punishment that we deserved for failing to live up to the law, and God gave us his righteousness. That's where Jesus is at in this text. To, to see this text, you have to know where this text is at in the Bible, and it's right before the start of the New Testament. Jesus comes, and Jesus, the, the whole Old Testament is about the people failing, and God giving them second chance after second chance after 45th chance, just over and over and over. And we're going to fail God. The difference is, is we can look back on the cross, whereas they were looking forward to the cross, and we can say, God has saved me in spite of myself. He saved me from myself. And John 1.1 1, 1, we see Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the, the whole Word that God's trying to base the Jews on. He's trying to base His church on today. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the Word God is trying to build His people around. Jesus and the Word are synonymous in the Bible. So what's, so what? That's my next question. My next question is, so what? Why does all this matter? You're probably sitting here this morning and going, okay, he just talked about this for 30 minutes. Why does this matter to me? 2012, tell me why it matters. You're going to worship something. You're going to build your life on something. The whole point of this text is that building your life on the Word, on Christ, Christ will never leave you or forsake you. You're going to build your life on something. There's a, there's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He's got an amazing little book called Counterfeit Gods. And he basically makes the case that even people who do not believe in God worship something. Everyone worships something. Think about the thing that if you had, it would make you truly happy. That's what you're worshiping. He says, if we look at some created thing to give us meaning, hope, happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually lead us to fail to, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. So what is that? What's that one thing that gives you meaning, hope, and happiness? Is it your job? Is it your family? Could you be putting your family above God? What, what, what's the one thing that you have in your life that you're worshiping? Or is it God? He says, he says later in his book, he says, A counterfeit God is anything so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. What's the one thing in your life that if you lost it, you feel like life could not go on? Is it God or is it something else? Is it your job? Is it your social status? What is it? He says an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, children, career, making money, social standing, video games, etc. 
point being is God wants to build people on His Word because He realizes that you build your life on something every day. Every day you go out to the world, every day you're at work, every day you're building your life on something. What is it? God wants you to build your life on His Word. God wants you to build His life on Him, on Jesus, because He will never leave you or forsake you. He's not going to He's not going to be like an idol. An idol does not have to be a little statue of a cow that's got 12 arms. It an idol is something that you love and you adore and you worship. This is my Lord of the Rings quote. Later in the book he says, The central plot device of the Lord of the Rings is Sauron's ring of power. Watch Lord of the Rings. Do I have good context? Everybody watch Lord of the Rings? Great. If you haven't, go watch it. Sauron's ring of power corrupts anyone who tries to use it however good or bad his intentions. The ring takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. What he's saying is he's saying an idol is not necessarily a bad thing. Family's a good thing. I love my family. They're pretty awesome. I love, um, I love my job, but it's not my ultimate thing. It's when you take good things and you turn them into the ultimate thing. You put them on the seat of God and you let, you let that thing take the place of God. He says, some good characters in the book want to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. These are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it, for an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to a terrible evil in Tolkien's novel and in real life. So what? You're, you're going to build your life on something. When your life's over, is that thing really worth the time and the investment that you're putting into it? God says it's not. I agree it's not. At, at the end of your life, when you look back on your life, can you say you've left a legacy of belief for your children and grandchildren? Or have you left a legacy of video games? A legacy of working so hard that you neglected your family for 35 years? It's really interesting when you read biographies of, um, you read biographies of famous men. They almost always neglect their families. It seems like rich and powerful men who I have read who have these amazing biographies. You know, people love their biographies. They're so great. They sacrifice something. I read, a, I read an article this week from, um, it was a, the uh, CEO of Yahoo. She's 37 years old. She's about to have her first kid. And what's very interesting is she works 80 to 90 hours a week. She's going to have the kid in October. And... Um, she does 60 meetings a week. That, that number scares me. To do 60 meetings a week would be death for me. I would lose my mind. If you think about it, it's 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. Assuming she works seven days a week. She probably does because, you know, six days a week would be like, something like 20 hours. She's giving up something. Her idols, her job, and her family is suffering because of it will suffer because of it. No words mentioned of her husband, nothing, because she's leaving it there because she desires her job so bad. What about what about obeying God's word we talked about earlier? Are you doing it with joy? This is for people who struggle with legalism. Are you doing it with joy or are you looking at the Bible as a moral handbook that something is to be something is to be followed so that I can feel good about myself or I can look good in a social status? Or is it something that you truly enjoy because God has given you his joy? 
Jesus is the key to that joy. Jesus' death and righteousness is what allows us to live the Christian life. What about us at Legacy? I said earlier we're, we're a word-led church. Jesus leads us through his word. It's, it's, it's the middle of everything we do. Just a couple practical tips. Read, read, read God's word. Read it. Understand it. I, I was reading a... Um, I read a poll, in, uh, it was in Britain, and of the people who attend, um, several different denominations of churches there, of the people who attend, 15% said they read their Bible daily. I will bet you that those 15% are the strongest Christians in that congregation, in all those congregations. I will guarantee it. And I will also bet that they probably have a pretty good grasp of the fact that they get to read their Bible, not that they have to read it. And, and when you when you read it, have a plan. Like like go through it. Do a Bible plan. It's it's real practical, real easy. Just get this Bible plan and mark it off. I've got one. It's called uh, I forget what it's called. I call it the laziness Bible reading plan, because I'm one of those people that like I will um, if I have to skip I may skip a day, and for the next day I'll read like I'll read like two sections. Like if I get real busy that day and I just get I just get to like a half a verse, I've got one and you just mark it off as you go. Because I ended up you know I end up by by March I end up feeling horrible about myself because I'm like two days behind or something. Memorize God's Word. Um, Dallas Willard wrote a book on, and he wrote a section on memorizing God's Word. He said, He said, Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. If I had to choose between all the disciplines of the spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization because it's a way to fill our minds with what it needs. The book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That's where you need it. How does it get to your mouth? By memorization. And if you have the word memorized when you're speaking to people, you're speaking to fellow believers who are struggling, you have something to share with them. What's better to share with them than God's word? Last thing I want to talk about, and this is the last thing I want us to see, is meditating on God's word. When I say meditate, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about this. When I, when I say meditate, meditate just means to muse, to think over. If you're really going to, if you're really going to see your life changed, if you really are going to build your life on the Word, you have to learn to meditate on the Word. And, and it's real simple. All you do is you take a section and you just find all the ways that God is applying it to your life. Ask questions about it. Ask why. Why is this written? Why is this important to me? Ask questions about it. George Mueller, the same guy I referenced earlier, he said, I saw the most important thing I had to do was give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God, and not the simple reading of the Word of God, so that it passes through our minds, just like water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. Psalm 119.27 says, Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So in summary, what are you building your life upon? Are you building your life on the Word? Are you building your life on an idol that is going to... An idol that's going to give itself up one day. An idol that's going to die out. You and I are going to die one day. And our lives are going to be judged based upon how, how well we know Jesus Christ. Our lives are going to be judged on Christ. Whether you believe in Christ or not, it's going to be judged on Christ.